Let's see. So last week, as we continued our study in the book of Acts, we studied a situation that Peter and John had gotten themselves into. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, as they always did, and as they were wanting to be around believers and to pray, God saw fit to use them in a very miraculous, yet a very practical way, by raising a man to walk who had never walked in his entire life. And that blows me away because he hadn't just healed an ailment, but he had created in him this ability to walk that wasn't learned. He didn't learn to walk. I'm thinking about that because Lucy's just starting to be able to pull up on stuff and trying to stand. She doesn't want to crawl. She wants to walk. And this man is going to do just that. He's going to go straight from not being able to move around at all with his legs. And all of a sudden, his legs will be healed and he'll be able to walk. He won't have to go through the whole process that you and I had to go through to learn how to walk. He'll just know. And the Lord will do that miraculously. But in this very good circumstance, it seems that there's a little bit of adversity. There's a group of religious folks that are not too happy about not only the healing, although I don't, it doesn't say that they're not happy about the healing, but they're unhappy about the one that these disciples are claiming has healed him. They're, they asked him, who, who did this? And they said, well, it was Jesus. And they explained it to them in a very real way. So what they did is still what we're called to do today. What they did in coming alongside, seeing this need in this man and giving them not money, giving this man not money, what he was asking for, but raising him and causing him to be able to walk is what Christians, you and I, are called to do for those that don't believe. Those that don't know the Lord personally, we're supposed to, as a natural response to God's love for us, fall in love with Him, get to know Him, get to know what He's able to do, and then to reach out to people that maybe have practical needs, but use those practical needs to meet them in a very spiritual way so they can come to know the Lord, so they can have their eyes open, so they can learn to walk with Him. And so these men did this. And as we do this, as we seek first God's righteousness, the result will be that He will build His kingdom in us and then through us. He'll use us to impact the world that's around us. He will use us to pray for, to lift up, to encourage, and for some, just to point them to Jesus when they realize that there's nothing else that will fill the need or the void that they have in their life. And that's a wonderful responsibility. It's a wonderful task to be able to be those that would represent our Lord. But it's also a huge responsibility to do it the right way. But even though God used Peter and John there were tangibly positive results from what they were used to do that led this man to praising God. Remember last week, he leaped up, and the first thing that he did is he went into the temple and he praised God. And everyone that knew him knew that he'd been sitting at that gate for his whole life, 40 years. Everyone saw what was happening, and they praised God too. They recognized that something special had happened, and they were excited, they were encouraged because for once, they realize God is in this place. He's, he's still at work. He's not dead. He's not non-existent. He's at work. He's desiring to touch individual lives. But we found out last week that just because we're doing God's will, just like Peter and John, it does not necessarily mean that we're going to be guaranteed comfort or what we would perceive as blessings for our faithfulness. 
Because you'll remember that the result of them doing that and this man jumping up, praising God, and they asked, well, who did this? Whose authority did you have to do this? And they said, it's Jesus. It was Jesus, the one that you crucified. He's the one by the power of the resurrection that's healed this man. And as a result of that, they, they didn't say, hey, good job. We want to encourage you. They took them captive and they put them in jail. And so we see the, the after effects of this in today's passage. But what I want to point out is that even though these men don't receive necessarily what we would call rewards, they did get rewards for their effort. They got thrown in jail. But those aren't the kind of a rewards that we're looking for in this life, right? Our rewards, we want to pat on the back. We want to, hey, good job, brother. We want to praise the Lord and keep going. But what these guys get is they get this group of crusty old Christians, these Jews that didn't trust in Jesus, they weren't Christians, uh, that throw them in jail and try to discourage them from preaching in the name of Jesus. But why weren't they rewarded? Well, Jesus never once told his disciples that they would be rewarded for their works of obedience. Did you know that? Jesus never once said, hey, when you're faithful, it's always going to go well for you. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, he gave them a very gloom look, if you ask me, but he ends it on a good note. Matthew chapter 10. This is in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching the keys to the kingdom. <clears throat> and these are the Beatitudes. I don't know if you guys have ever been through the Beatitudes before, but um, they're not what we would call uh, exciting unless we understand what Jesus is teaching. Because he says, I think it's like 10 or 12 times, he says, blessed are you when this happens. And the word blessed, when you look at it in the original text, it means, oh, how happy are you? Now we kind of get that. Blessed. If I'm blessed, I'm happy, right? But this is a happiness that goes beyond circumstances. Because he says there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you. Oh, how happy are you when you're persecuted? Now, I, don't, I read that and I'm like, what? That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But he says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So we need to recognize that we're blessed when we're persecuted and when people say all kinds of vile things against us falsely. Now, if they're saying vile things and they're persecuting you because you're doing bad, if you're doing evil, then you're not blessed. You're just getting your comeuppance. But in this case, he's saying, blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for God's sake. And then he continues, he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Everyone that's ever been a mouthpiece that God has desired, decided to speak into time through to speak to their people has been persecuted. He's saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because every one of my servants that has gone before you, they were persecuted as well. But he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward 
tomorrow when you go to work, everyone's going to get along with you. No, it says, great is your reward in heaven. That's where our reward is. And I think oftentimes we forget that. We want the Lord to bless us now. And don't get me wrong, I want the same thing. But what the Lord says is, I want to bless you, but it may not come here and now. You might have to wait. You might have to be patient. Because this world will not get up, hoop and holler and encourage you when you serve Jesus. Because to the world, the message of Jesus is foolishness and it's also judgmental. They don't like it. But to those of us who have been saved by the grace of God, it's a message of kindness and of love and of grace and of mercy. It's a message of hope. There was also another man that taught this same message in 1 Timothy. You don't have to turn there. Um, But Paul was writing to young Timothy, his disciple. And Paul, when he was writing to him, he was trying to encourage him. Because Timothy was in a very worldly culture. He was surrounded by many people that worshiped many gods. And he was surrounded by people that were used to, in their systems of worship, going into temple prostitutes in the temple. That was their religious act. They were doing all these worldly things. And when Timothy comes along, he says, hey, you can't be saved by any other name than by Jesus. There's only one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. And so because of that, he got persecuted. And people didn't like him. People don't mind if you talk about their hobbies or other things that are going on. But in our world, you cannot say that Jesus is the only way. You can say that he's a way to heaven, but when you say he's the only way, people get upset because it means that they're wrong and they're thinking that you're being holier than thou. But you only are if you're, if you're not right. But what he told Timothy to encourage him, he says, he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All those who are obedient to the Lord at some point are going to suffer persecution. Now to us, this doesn't seem like encouragement. But to Timothy, who was being persecuted already, perhaps he was already discouraged. But these words would be encouraging. He was being persecuted, and perhaps he was like you and I. When we get persecuted, oftentimes the first temptation is to start doubting. Have I done something wrong? Is that why I'm incurring this persecution? Maybe I'm getting in trouble at work because I'm not working hard enough. Maybe I've done something to defame or to... You know, maybe I've just done something wrong. I'm not following the Lord right. But what he encourages Timothy is, if you're living to, if your desire is to live godly in Christ, if you're trying to be obedient, you're going to suffer persecution. So in other words, if you, on, your, on the dashboard of your life, it's not a check engine light, but it's the little persecution light. It flips on and it doesn't mean there's problems. It means probably you're doing what you're supposed to. That's encouraging. Because I don't know about you guys, but I get discouraged when I'm trying to share my faith or if I'm just trying to do my job to please the Lord and people come along and they're like, you're a Christian, aren't you? You know, oh, you probably believe in creation and all this other stuff. Yes, I do. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry that you feel that way. And then you're like, man, that's discouraging. When people are that bummed out about you trusting in the one true and living God and they've they may not see it, but they're just as religious, but about things that don't matter. You know, they're into their hobbies, and that's what they worship. And so, but we need to know, we need to remember that just because we're doing God's will doesn't mean that it's always going to be comfortable. And that's okay. Sometimes that just means we might be pleasing the Lord. 
So, <clears throat> but what I wanted to point out is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling with people. When people get in our grill, when people get upset with us because of our faith, we have to realize that it's because we're on, we're not in God's turf. We're not in heaven yet. And so there's still this war going on between good and evil. And that war is fought between you guys and I and the principalities and the dark powers of this world. Satan is the prince of this world. He's the ruler. He's in charge. And uh, if all he has to do is to discourage you and I, then he will do that. And when he does that, he's effectively trying to shut us up. He's trying to shut down the words of life, the encouragement that we can give in Jesus. And if all he has to do is that, then he doesn't have to discourage non-believers. They're already, they're happy in the world. They're encouraged by the sin that they're involved in. And so all Satan wants to do is shut us down. And that's kind of what's going on today in the passage with these guys. As they're trying to share the good news, they're being discouraged by those that are not just like not believers in God, but they are against God. Whether they know it or not, because they don't believe in Jesus, because they are not obedient to Jesus, because they don't believe he's the Messiah, they're against God and they're going to get ready to try and shut down the ones that are walking with God. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, that's where we'll start. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, what I want to point out is that the Sadducees all of a sudden are the, on the forefront. You don't hear much about the Pharisees after the resurrection of Jesus. The problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus is that he claimed to be God. The problem that the Sadducees had with Jesus is that he claimed that he was going to be raised from the dead. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the miraculous power of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. All they believed in, they were materialists. And so they would gain great amounts of wealth. They used Christianity, or excuse me, Judaism as a means to to gain wealth and prominence. It was all about getting our comfort and our encouragement here. It wasn't about the Lord and His plan. And so because of that, they had a problem with these guys preaching that Jesus resurrected and then that same power was doing miracles. So they were greatly disturbed, verse 2, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard of the word believed, excuse me, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So if you'll remember last week, we talked about the fact that even though these disciples were put in jail, there were still about 5,000, says men, which means we know it was more people because in those days they would only count the men. Sorry, ladies, that's not what I do. So if I did that, only one person would live in my house. Now there's three of us and I'm not the majority. So, um, But my point is, is there were many more than 5,000 that heard the good news and believed. They didn't just hear it, but they believed. So even though John and Peter were put in jail, it was a small thing because 5,000 plus believed in the gospel that day. And that's a huge deal. That, that makes it worth it. 
You know, to me, many times I'm called to do things that are uncomfortable. But if it's just one person would believe because of something I was going through or my testimony of God's faithfulness, it's all worth it. That's what the disciples look at it as. Verse five, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. So they've got this group of the uh, higher echelon of religious worship at that time. And these people are going to put Peter and John to trial. And they're not happy about what they're doing, so they're trying to find some fault that they can keep them in jail for. So verse 7 says, When they had set them in the midst, in other words, when they set them before them, kind of like a trial, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? So in other words, who gave you the authority to do this miracle and why are you preaching in this name? What's going on with you? So verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and I want to stop there because I want you to notice how Peter responded to those who were against him. He didn't respond by getting angry. He doesn't say he was filled with anger. That's how I would respond. I would be filled with anger. I would be filled with pride, maybe insecurity. Maybe that's just me, not you guys. Sometimes I get filled with insecurity, and that's how we respond to people. But it doesn't say that. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responded. How many arguments could you and I stop in our own households if we would start our responses to our spouses, to our children, to our extended family, if we were filled with the Holy Spirit when we responded to them? How would that look? I think we're going to get a picture of that today because these weren't like people that he got along with. These were people that disagreed wholeheartedly with them. And so he responds in love. He responds filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 8 through 10, let's read 8 one more time. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, notice he throws that in there again, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. That word whole means complete. That word whole means healed restored. If you're wondering how we've done this, we didn't do it. Don't look at it us like it was us. It was the power of God. And so this is what they're explaining. And I love this because the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who will believe. And Peter is testifying that it was Jesus that did this And that's why he is whole today. Do you know that when people ask us the reason for the hope that is in us, the reason that we've been saved isn't because we go to church. It's not because we read our Bibles. It's not because we pray three times a day. It's not any of those things. If people ever ask us, we have to tell them, it was by the power of God that I've been made whole. I've been restored. I've been redeemed. 
That's the only thing that I can boast in is what Paul wrote in Romans 1. And that's what these guys are boasting in. And so he explains to them and then he gives them another thing. He says in verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. I want to point this verse out because to us, that might seem like out of left field. All of a sudden he's saying, what's he talking about buildings and cornerstones for? Well, he quotes from their psalm that they would know in Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. He's pointing them to an Old Testament reference, not to prove to them that he knows their scripture, but because he's giving them an insight into what that scripture was originally about. It was about their Messiah. He's saying, remember that the stone in Psalm 118 that they talked about, that the builders had rejected, it was the chief cornerstone? Well, that stone they were talking about wasn't the temple. It wasn't when they were building the temple. He was talking about the church that he was building and how Jesus would be the chief cornerstone around whom they would build the entire church. He's the one that the church is built on. And so if you don't have a relationship with him, then you're not going to get it. Things aren't going to make sense to you. And the point is, is that when they would take a cornerstone and they would put it in the corner where they were going to build the foundation of the, the temple or any building, that stone was manufactured to a higher standard than all the other stones. It was perfectly manufactured. It was very costly. And they would set it in place knowing that if they didn't set it right, then the rest of the building would be wrong. They would build the building all the way around this stone. And because of that stone being manufactured and expensive, what would happen is the rest of the building would be completely square. It would be right. Now, what do we do with our cornerstones? We put the year the building was built, right? That's because we know that cornerstone's not going anywhere. Even if the whole building goes down, they're going to rebuild it from that stone once again. And so Jesus was that chief cornerstone. And he says there, this is the stone which you builders, you leaders in Israel, rejected, which he has become that chief cornerstone. And, and then he continues. He says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's not talking about some idea for the crowd to understand. He's saying, I had to be saved by this stone as well. I had to be saved by this name, by Jesus as well. So when I'm proclaiming it to someone else, saying there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, it was for me too. I've been saved by his grace. So Peter explains to them in less words than I am that they've chosen the wrong cornerstone for their lives. They'd chosen religion and trying to please their fellow man. Peter's explaining to them that they need to give that up trying to please men, trying to be religious and fulfill certain customs that you're used to will not save you. Give up trying to please the people that you've surrounded yourself with is what he's telling them. Stop trying to get them to like you. Being religious, popular even, will not get you to heaven. It won't even make you happy while you're here on earth. It's miserable trying to please people because their, their appetites and the things that they're into always change. You can't please everyone all the time. You can't even please some people some of the time. Why try? Why try to be popular? He says, if you build your life around the rock of Jesus Christ, 
You'll be like that man that he talked about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. He, who, he, who, he told the disciples, he told everyone listening, he says, he who hears my words and puts them to practice will be like the man that's built his house upon a rock. And when the winds come and the waves crash, that house will remain. It won't go anywhere. It won't move. But he who does not hear my words and put them to practice, he told them, will be like the man who built his house on sand. And when the winds come and the waves crash, it's a pretty house. But when that even a stone foundation is laid on top of sand, it won't stand. It'll wash away. That whole thing will come crumbling down in the day of adversity. So if you let him be the perfect foundation upon which everything else in your life can be built and let him be the one that will be for you, keep you from being swayed by everything else that will come along the way, then when he's the one upon which your life stands, what you do and what you say will line up with who he is and what he does. And then your life, by virtue of who he is and who's in control of it, will be a platform upon which God's name will be made famous. You'll be a billboard for his grace. Remember what I pointed out earlier about Peter's inspiration for speaking. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He Filled with the Holy Spirit, he spoke. But how can we know if someone's filled with the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that they get up on the stage on a Sunday morning and they start sweating and waving a hanky and yelling at you and getting all excited? Sometimes I think. You know, the Lord gets us excited about what we're teaching. Sometimes I even raise my voice and get excited. All of a sudden my arms are going everywhere and you guys are like, what's his deal? You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe Acts chapter 4 verse 13 gives us some insight into what it looks like when a believer in Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. These are the marks of someone who is speaking, who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Brian, if you'll give me the next slide, <clears throat> I'm going to read through what I noticed that these men noticed. These enemies of Peter and John noticed about Peter and John, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit because of, number one, they were bold. Now, I've been bold about things and not been filled with the Holy Spirit before, in anger or whatever else. But number two, what they noticed is that these men were uneducated. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like people to notice that I'm uneducated. I don't like them to notice that I'm kind of humble and lowly. But that's what they noticed about these men. They were bold, they were uneducated, they were untrained. Okay, there's strike two, right? In our eyes, we go, well, that person can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because they're not very smart. They don't even know what they're doing. They messed up last week. You know, when I was telling that story about the Thanksgiving turkey and that, I felt like, man, I really jacked that up, but God used it, you know? And, uh, but what they noticed is they were bold, uneducated, they were untrained. But the fourth thing I put up there is they noticed that he had been with Jesus. They didn't agree with Jesus at all, these people that were listening. But they did notice that the character and the way that these men reflected the love of God, or at least the love of God they understood, was they, they noticed these men have obviously spent time with Jesus because they, they sound like him, they teach the same things he did, 
And they're stirring up the crowd. They're aggravating the tar out of us. These men were no doubt with Jesus. Now, even if people disagree with you, but they recognize that you know Jesus, I think that's a pretty good testimony. So verse 14. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. So they're going to have a little powwow. They're going to discuss the evidence that they've seen. Verse 16, they were saying among themselves, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. I love that. They're, they're testifying that Jesus did this work and their character and the way they handle themselves in this adversity when people are putting them on trial testifies that, you know, what they're saying is true. We can't deny it. We've seen this man walking around. We saw him at the Temple Gate Beautiful for 40 years. And they've done nothing to cause anyone to blaspheme. So what were they so upset about? Why were they trying to put them in jail? Well, they decide to set them free. Uh, Well, let me read the verses. Verse 17. But so that it spreads no further, they decide, among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no man, excuse me, speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. They decide to set these men free. I love that. But they tell them, we're going to set you free, but you need to shut up. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop speaking in his name. Stop proclaiming that he is resurrected. We don't want to hear it. Don't speak anymore to anyone about Jesus. Don't speak about him. Don't teach in his name. Be silent. Don't breathe a word. Now, we live in a society that tells us that. We live in a society where, according to the law, we have free speech. We're allowed to assemble and even share ideas freely. But it's becoming more and more unpopular to talk about Jesus. You can talk about almost any other religion. You can talk about your hobbies. You can bash people. It's now come to the point where it's okay to openly mock people and their beliefs. You can talk about your faith. You can talk about other gods. But if you start talking about Jesus, people get upset. Especially when you proclaim that he's the only way to get to heaven. They really don't like that. That's offensive to people, they say. That we could be so arrogant to claim that we have the only way to God. It aggravates people. But it isn't arrogant. It's the truth. And the truth sometimes hurts, right? Now we're called to submit to our leaders, aren't we? Paul tells believers to Pray for their leaders. And actually, Peter wrote in one of his epistles, you need to pray for your king because God has set him in authority over you. And realize that when Peter wrote that to the believers, he wasn't a good king. He was way worse than whoever you might have in your mind when you think of a bad leader, an ungodly leader. Peter was writing to them. He said, submit to your leaders and pray for them because God set them in place. And when Peter wrote that in the context, he was talking about a guy by the name of Caesar Nero, who took Christians for fun, burned them at the stake, and then he would use them to light his garden at night so he could race his chariot around in circles while he was buck naked. This was not a godly man. He was insane. 
according to my standard anyway. And so when he said, pray for your leaders, God set them over you, he was talking about Nero. God wants us to pray for our leaders. He wants us to submit to them with one condition. Submit to them as unto the Lord. If they cause you to try to supersede one of God's commands, realize that you don't have to submit to that. If they tell you not to speak in the name of Jesus, you don't have to submit to that. You have to be respectful, but you have to still do what God commanded us, right? Go into all nations and share the gospel among all people. Make disciples of all nations. Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and do that. That wasn't a suggestion. It was a command, a direct order from our King of Kings, our High Commander. So when severely threatened to keep silent concerning Jesus, Peter and John, they respond accordingly. Verse 18 through 20 says, They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, and I love this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So God's commands always supersede the commandments and the teachings of men. He does not change nor do his instructions, but men's Ideas and instructions, they change. So do their rules, right? We follow a heavenly authority. We're citizens of his kingdom. But we're in a strange position because at the same time, we do live in this world and we are called to submit to the laws of the land. Because we're temporary travelers. We're guests here in this world. We're, the Bible calls us pilgrims, sojourners, strangers in a foreign land. Do you consider yourself a stranger in this land? Because we are. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you live according to his kingdom. And so sometimes it seems like there's a gray area. Do I submit to the Lord or do I submit to my leader? And the answer is yes. (laughs) You submit to the Lord, but you submit to your leader as unto the Lord. We're just passing through here. We've been given a message to proclaim on our journey. Otherwise, God just would have pulled us out the day we got saved. So verse 21 and 22 says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The direct result of them being filled with the Spirit and testifying that God was the one that did what happened is that all the people that saw it didn't glorify Peter and John, they glorified God. Now, I believe that this, um, they, had, they had to let these two men go, Peter and John, for two reasons. Number one, they couldn't prove that their words were false. They couldn't prove it because of the evidence of the miracle that had taken place. And number two, they had to let them go because the works they did caused the people to worship their God. They couldn't get aggravated about that they weren't even able to cause the people to jump and praise the Lord. So when these men come along and do this miracle and testify that it was the grace of God that did it, it causes the people to to worship. And that's what they came to the temple for. So it was a good thing. But I believe this incident also had quite the large impact on Peter. Because the way that he thought about serving the Lord, Peter had gotten himself 
we already read the Gospels over the last year, and Peter had gotten himself into trouble many times by way of speaking up and putting his foot in his mouth. And I think Peter is probably one of the most well-known guys for sticking his foot in his mouth. But this time, when he opened his mouth, the situation was completely different. When they had spoken, people listened, they heard, and they weren't able to find anything by which to punish him after he spoke. I don't know about you guys, but when I speak, I get in trouble. (laughs) But when God speaks through me, he uses it, and people aren't able to find anything wrong with what I say. He had spoken, and his words didn't end up getting him into trouble. This was a miracle to Peter. He wasn't used to this. And I'm convinced that they were afraid, even though it doesn't seem like they were afraid. I think they were still afraid that they might go back to jail and be locked up. But it was not their own ideas or their philosophies that they were standing on. These weren't their own ideas that compelled them to continue speaking. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Lord who was set apart in their hearts as not just another man, but the authority that was given to them. They were desiring to please the Lord, and they were filled with his words. And so because of that, nobody had a reason to blaspheme the God that that sent them. And Peter later wrote about this experience, I believe, in 1 Peter, if you'll turn there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 3. I believe Peter, in this experience that he's just had in Acts chapter 4, was inspired, and he wrote to a group of, of people, the Jewish Christians, that had been spread out because of persecution during the time of Caesar Nero that I was talking about. I'll get there. I'm just giving you guys time. That's what I'm doing. First <laughs> Peter chapter 3. Peter writes to the persecuted Christians, not based on ideologies or philosophy, but based on experience. He knew that he could trust in what, what he's writing here. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He's just repeating to them what he learned from Jesus. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But he says, sanctify the Lord. In other words, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as if you're an evildoer, those who defame you or your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter and John had been so filled with the Holy Spirit that what they had seen and heard from Jesus, they could not help but trust in it and proclaim it. They were no doubt caught off guard because of the chain of events. They didn't expect to be put in prison for healing a man. But they were convinced that God was even in control of this situation and had given them this opportunity. And when they took advantage of it, they didn't concern themselves with what might happen. Now, I think part of it was because they were being naive. They were thinking, hey, God sent us, we're going to speak these words, and we're good. It's kind of like the little boy that his parents sent him out on the bike for the first time with no training wheels. Hey, mom and dad wouldn't put us in a spot where we get get hurt, right? Well, they don't mean for you to get hurt, but part of the process is sometimes you fall. 
Sometimes you do get a little scrape. And God was more interested in reaching those who had never heard the truth than he was in a little scuff on one of his followers. He knew that scuff would cause his followers, Peter and John, to trust him even more. And so he sends these guys out. And God was showing me, because I needed this message this week. I had come across a little bit of adversity this week at work. But God was showing me that these men, these ordinary, uneducated, untrained men, these are attributes that I can actually relate to. I don't know about you guys, but I feel ordinary, uneducated, and untrained most days. But they noticed about these guys that they had been with Jesus, they had seen him work, and they had listened to his words, and they simply took them and proclaimed them from the housetop every time they got an opportunity. And while they did it, they were stretched to trust the Lord more, but God gave them the ability to be bold, and even though the consequences could mean that they would suffer or because of false accusations, Remember, he said, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And I bring that up again because I've been mocked. I've, been, I've gotten into trouble in the past for doing stupid, stupid, stupid things. Things that I should have never done in the first place. But why not be willing to go through a little mocking or in our culture, maybe just a little ridicule Maybe not, why not be willing to lose a couple friends if you might get to share the truth of Jesus with them? That's what these guys looked at it as. Wouldn't it be worth it if just one person might hear the truth and be forgiven their sins and be given new life in Jesus Christ? I'm willing to lose a friend temporarily if it means that I might gain them for eternity. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the testimony of John and the testimony of Peter. Thank you that they were willing to go through a little bit of suffering in order that those who need salvation might hear of your goodness. Lord, may we be in the same boat. May we just jump in and and trust you and ask you, Lord, um, I'm not bold. I'm not filled with your word. I, I need more of you. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit so that when I do speak, it doesn't bring shame to your name, but it brings glory and honor and people... I pray that people wouldn't be able to catch me in my words and show that I wasn't really following you. Lord, I, I want to glorify you with all that I do, and I want other people to come to know you. And so, Lord, I pray that each person in here would, would desire that same thing, just desire more of you and less of us. And if it means that we might suffer so that someone else might come to know us, Lord, uh, use us. We're yours. So may your light shine through each one of our lives. May Jesus be glorified. And even when our faults are found out, when we're found to be uneducated or not trained enough, Lord, may even our faults and our weaknesses be a means by which you can gain glory. So Lord, uh, thank you for this time. Pray you'd bless each one as they spend their Sunday. Lord, uh, thank you for being our Savior. Thank you that we have a reason to gather and to worship and to sing. And Lord, just be with us as we sing this last song. In Jesus' name.